Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, we're going to talk about something that slipped past my radar late last year. Maybe it didn't slip past yours, but hey, I can't catch everything. And that is the fact that our favorite social networking site, Facebook, has gone through a very interesting structural process to create an oversight board that it is currently purporting will control all of its major content decisions. And this oversight board is supposed to be independent and outside of the purview of the company. Now, we're going to talk about why, in some respects, that's true, but in the much larger respect, that's not the case in just a second. But first, I wanted to talk about what this thing is. So I've pulled up an article from the New York Times. It says, who ultimately decides what content is removed from Facebook? Now, we do. Introducing the company's independent oversight board. And the authors of this particular opinion article in the New York Times are the first four members of that board, which is going to be comprised of 20 people. It says social media affects people's lives in many ways, good and bad. Right now, as the world endures a health crisis, social media has become a lifeline for many people, providing valuable information and helping families and communities stay connected. At the same time, we know that social media can spread speech that is hateful, harmful, and deceitful. In recent years, the question of what content should stay up or come down on platforms like Facebook and who should decide this has become increasingly urgent. Now, a couple of things there, just as we start, they're talking about hate speech, harmful speech, and lies, deceitful speech. Generally speaking, at least in the United States, the First Amendment protects a lot of speech. And for the most part, the protections are going to extend to even things that might be considered lies, certainly things that might be considered harmful or hateful. But we know and we understand that social media and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube aren't the government. We've talked about that in virtual legality and that they don't really mean every possible thing that could be considered as hatred, right? You're allowed to say you hate The Last Jedi. You're not allowed to say you hate a specific race of people. And that kind of argument is going to hold water for a lot of folks, right? In general, we want a space that we can engage in good conversation, maybe a generalized battle of ideas, sure, but not with a lot of ad hominem attacks. And certainly these private actors have every reason to want to give to the public a space where that public is going to want to spend time and to hopefully see things like advertisements that Facebook might otherwise serve up. So it appears that Facebook has, and they did at the end of last year, made an effort to give the people some kind of feeling of safety, feeling that somebody else is going to be adjudicating these kinds of decisions because a lot of fire has come down in Facebook. You can remember from last year the many times Mark Zuckerberg was grilled in testimony before various congressional committees, and Facebook doesn't want to deal with that anymore. So Facebook came up with a plan, and it was this oversight board. Then they give a paragraph about how many people kind of contributed to the organization of the oversight board and what is going to be its makeup, et cetera, et cetera. And it says the following. Today, the first set of members of the oversight board is being announced. We are the four co-chairs. After Facebook selected us, already kind of an interesting thing to say about an independent committee, commission, or entity, Facebook selected the four people that then selected the other 16. Probably a necessary evil for the start of something like this, but hard to find that kind of relationship as terribly independent. They then, they then say everybody has a lot of good credentials to do this kind of thing. And then they explain some of the structure. 
Our independent judgment is guaranteed by our structure. The oversight board's operations are funded by a $130 million trust fund that is completely independent of Facebook and cannot be revoked. Facebook did fund it, but Facebook can't get the money back. Board members will serve fixed terms of three years up to a maximum of three terms, so almost a decade. They contract directly with the oversight board. So when you're a board member, you have a contract that talks about your board responsibilities to the board, not to Facebook. We cannot be removed by Facebook. Through the founding bylaws of the oversight board, Facebook has committed to carrying out our decisions, even though it may at times disagree, unless doing so would violate the law. Now, we're going to talk about the board charter. We're going to look at that. But it's worth noting a couple things here. If you aren't familiar with governance, the way a corporation is set up is it has an overall certificate or articles of incorporation, the highest law of that corporation. That's its constitution. Then it has bylaws that operate under that constitution. The bylaws being things like you would consider the statutes, the laws of the land in which you live. And they can't violate the constitution. It's kind of a tiered hierarchy. In this particular instance, the oversight board is saying we have our own governance documents. We're going to see it's called a board charter. And that charter says that Facebook will listen to us. It's worth noting that through the founding bylaws of the oversight board, Facebook has committed, regardless of what the rest of that sentence were to say, doesn't make obvious legal sense to this lawyer sitting here kind of looking at all of this. The oversight board having certain rules in its own governing documents don't control what a supposedly independent entity like Facebook can or cannot do. Facebook might have committed to do what the board tells it, but the board's bylaws in and of themselves can't make Facebook do something or not do something. That's why the next sentence is important in this particular article where they say Mark Zuckerberg has also personally committed to this arrangement. Now, it's also worth noting Mark Zuckerberg is not the be-all and end-all of what Facebook can do. He has fiduciary obligations to his company, as would any officer or majority shareholder or anybody with other kind of controlling features at a corporate level. So there's already a little bit of sleight of hand, and that's really part and parcel to what's attempting to be done here. Now, this actual article continues by saying we're going to focus on hate speech. We're going to focus only on those decisions that we think are going to influence a lot of people and the way Facebook operates in general. So I want to go back and really talk about how this arose for Facebook, what it was that they decided to do. So I pulled up a Verge article from September of last year that has a Mark Zuckerberg quote that I think is very interesting. We are responsible for enforcing our policies every day, and we make millions of content decisions every week. But ultimately, I don't believe that private companies like ours should be making so many important decisions about speech on our own. That's why I've called for governments to set clearer standards around harmful content. It's also why we're now giving people a way to appeal our content decisions by establishing the Independent Oversight Board. Now, what's really important here is to understand that what we are talking about are competing considerations. If you just want to allow any speech to be the maximally protective of the freedom of speech, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. You can have Facebook, you can accept every bit of content that comes onto your platform, and you can say, hey, if something's harmful or hateful or otherwise problematic, we're not going to deal with it. Now, that's not going to fly politically or just in kind of the court of public opinion because so many bad things can be put on your platform. That's one of the reasons why we see these tech giants try to moderate, at least on the outside edges, to make sure that the really, really, really bad stuff doesn't make an appearance 
on their platform. But note what Mr. Zuckerberg is saying here. He thinks it's too important for him to be allowed to make these decisions. He wants more restrictions. He wants more coverage. I put in the thumbnail here, Facebook offloads the blame that they're paying for someone else to get in the firing line of people that might otherwise be angry at it. And you can see that exactly in this kind of sentiment. Hey, we make a lot of decisions. We'd really appreciate it if you governments could give us some cover and say, you're not allowed to do X, Y, or Z so that we could make these decisions and not have people protest us, not have complaints from various congressional officials, et cetera, et cetera. We'd really like that cover. And so we are going to take the first step into giving ourselves that cover by having this oversight board. Facebook's commitment to the oversight board. Facebook is built to give people a voice. Free expression is fundamental to who we are as a company, just as it is to a free, inclusive, and democratic society. Good word so far. We believe the more people who have the power to express themselves, the more progress our society makes together. We want to make sure our products and policies support this. We also recognize that there are times when people use their voice to endanger others. That's why we have community standards to articulate what is and isn't allowed on our platforms. Keep that in mind. That's the law of the land, and that's going to be really important to kind of understanding how this oversight board doesn't quite do what it's cracked up to. When we enforce these policies, we follow a set of values, authenticity, safety, privacy, and dignity, guided by international human rights standards, and we'll come back to that as well. Our commitment to free expression is paramount, but we still need to keep people safe and take down harmful content. He might not fully understand what paramount means. That's fine. It's all right to say we need to balance some things. You're a private actor. You're not a government. But they seem very skittish about saying what they want to say here, and that's why they're putting all these bodies in place to do what ultimately they want to do. If someone disagrees with the decision we've made, they can appeal to us first, and soon they will be able to further appeal to this independent board. The board's decision will be binding even if I or anyone at Facebook disagrees with it. The board will use our values to inform its decisions and explain its reasoning openly and in a way that protects people's privacy. Again, privacy openly, we've got all sorts of issues with how this thing is actually structured. But also note that this is a raw assertion from Mr. Zuckerberg that the board's decision will be binding and we don't actually have anything in the contract from Facebook. We don't have any indication from Facebook's side of the equation that they actually do have to be treated as binding. Now, obviously, you go out with a public letter like this. You've made certain commitments in the public space. If Facebook just decided to not do something that the board told it to do, that would be a big deal. But would it be a legal deal? Would it be something that was problematic from a legal perspective? I have my doubts there, and it would depend a lot on what Facebook has done internally that they haven't shown us to actually bind themselves to this board. The last thing I want to read from this letter from Mr. Zuckerberg is how he describes what the board will be doing. It says, the board will be an advocate for our community, supporting people's right to free expression, and making sure we fulfill our responsibility to keep people safe. Competing considerations, you'll note. As an independent organization, we hope it gives people confidence that their views will be heard and that Facebook doesn't have the ultimate power over their expression. Just as our board of directors keeps Facebook accountable to our shareholders, we believe the oversight board can do the same for our community. Now, that's a great analogy, and it's what jumped out at me as a corporate lawyer and why I wanted to talk about this thing. 
They are offloading responsibilities of their main product line out into the world to what they are describing as an independent third party that they are agreeing to be bound to regardless of whether or not they agree or disagree with the action recommended to be taken. That's a remarkable kind of state of affairs for a company like Facebook that has to respond to its shareholders, to its other stakeholders, and to everyone involved with its operations. And I look at this from a corporate governance perspective and say, is that actually meeting your fiduciary obligations to the company? Can you just offload your responsibility to someone else? The rubber hits the road here when that board tells you to do something you very much do not want to do. What happens then? And that's what we're going to talk about now. So the oversight board has a charter. This is what we talked about. I believe this is what is described as their bylaws. There might be a separate bylaws document. I didn't see that being made publicly available, but the charter is the broad kind of precepts of how this thing is to operate. And you see here what was already described, what we've talked about in this video. It's an oversight board. It is designed to protect free expression, but also safety. And how it operates is as follows. Section four of the first article talks about what it can do. The board will have the following expressly defined authorities for content properly brought to the board for review. So we'll see later on people that exhaust the appeals process at Facebook. They go up as far up the ladder as they can, can go and ask the board to review their case. As we saw in the opinion article in New York Times, the board's not going to get to everything. It's going to essentially decide what it wants to review, much like the Supreme Court. And that's really how this has been set up, is that you've got Facebook as a kind of legislature passing rules, laws, by setting their community standards. And then you have this board interpreting those community standards. But wherein that relationship lies is where the weakness also lies. So what the board can do is once something has been brought to its attention and it's decided to hear the case, it can request that Facebook provide additional information as needed to make the deliberation. It can then interpret Facebook's community standards and other relevant policies in light of Facebook's articulated values. This is the main thing it does. So here's what's really interesting. The board, independent, we're deciding, we're the ultimate decider is basically only deciding how to interpret what Facebook puts before it in its community standards and in light of what Facebook has stated is important to it, which makes a certain amount of sense. Facebook is ultimately in control of what appears on its system, but it's worth noting that this can change at any time at all, right? Unlike a legislature, which at least has to go through a certain amount of process and churn amongst who's in the House and the Senate and who the president is or the governor, if you're talking about a state or maybe another municipality, in this particular case, Facebook could tomorrow decide that the hate speech definition is completely different, that they're going to define false news or fake news completely separately, that they're going to take a manipulated media policy and they're going to make it much, much, much broader and apply to much more things, just light editing, whatever it might be. And Facebook retains that power as we look at this entire relationship. So the oversight board, yes, it is charged with interpreting what Facebook says about itself and how it says it, but Facebook could change that on a dime. So when that board gives an opinion that Facebook disagrees with, all they have to do is change the policy that the board was interpreting. 
Yeah, they're independent. Yeah, they have $130 million. Yeah, they can tell Facebook what to do, although that's an open question as well. But if Facebook doesn't like it, they can change the rules. They can say, oh, my goodness, we can change what you just opined on, and now we're in the clear. And that does happen on a legislative basis as well. We, in fact, looked at that yesterday in virtual legality, where Congress actually changed the Copyright Act to respond to a court case that they didn't like. But to go out to the New York Times to put letters out into the public and suggest that this board is the one ultimately responsible for all this isn't true. Facebook is still ultimately responsible because they're the ones putting out the language that is to be interpreted. After that interpretation, you see the rest of their powers here. The board can instruct Facebook to allow or remove content. They can instruct Facebook to uphold or reverse a designation that led to an outcome already. And they can issue, and they have to issue, prompt written explanations of the board's decisions. In addition, the board can provide policy guidance specific to a case decision or at Facebook's request on Facebook's current policies. The board will have no authority or powers beyond those expressly defined by this charter. They can provide policy guidance. Facebook can go and say, hey, how should we change this rule? The board can say how they would do it, but you don't see this same kind of binding language that was otherwise discussed. The board members will get certain amounts of money from the trust. They will fulfill the duties set out in the contract with Facebook and their personal contract with the board. There'll be a selection process. And then we get to how this is reviewed. People using Facebook services and Facebook itself may bring forward content for the board's review. The board will review and decide on content in accordance with Facebook's content policies and values as articulated by Facebook. Oh yes, we value that. Oh no, we don't value that. And the board will make the decision based on what Facebook tells it. In instances where people disagree with the outcome of Facebook's decision and have exhausted appeals, a request for review can be submitted to the board by either the original poster of the content or a person who previously submitted the content to Facebook for a review. Separately, Facebook can submit the request, including additional questions related to the treatment of content and detailed procedures on submission and requirements for review by the board will be made publicly available. The board has the discretion to choose which requests it will review and decide upon, and in its selection, the board will seek to consider cases that have the greatest potential to guide future decisions and policies. And that's where we get into the next section, right? What is the basis of their decision-making? A couple of interesting choices have been made by Facebook here. First of all, we once again get the establishment that Facebook has values that it can articulate however it likes. Facebook has a set of values that guide its content policies and decisions. The lawyer in me says, yes, what might those be? That's the kind of thing that would go in here. You lock that in, whatever those values might be. The stuff that appeared in Mark Zuckerberg's letter, by leaving it empty and ambiguous, it gives full authority for Facebook to change what those values might be at any given time and to inform the board of what those new values are. We really value safety now over freedom of expression. Please take that into consideration in your future decisions. I'm not saying Facebook's going to do that. I'm saying that this is all illusions. This is all Pepper's ghost, whatever else you want me to describe it as. It's not something that actually binds Facebook in any tangible way. It's a PR stunt. The board will review content enforcement decisions and determine whether they were consistent with Facebook's content policies and values, the ones they wrote and the values that they stated. For each decision, any prior board decisions will have precedential value and should be viewed as highly persuasive when the facts, applicable policies, or other factors are substantially similar. 
they are going to build case law about this. If you're not familiar with precedent, basically it says when a court decides something and the next case has certain aspects of it that relate to what was a previous decision, the previous decision will give kind of the foundational principles for the next decision, giving kind of a clear pathway to the way that the law reads. That makes a lot of sense in a court system. But one kind of aspect of that is that the interpretation of any given law, any given status quo can get away from you. When you're six precedents down the line and the court has built a doctrine of interpretation that doesn't even mirror what you have in the language in your existing statute, or in this case, community standard, they can start to make decisions that don't really reflect what you think the statute is that you wrote. And so when you've got precedent taking power, taking authority, yes, that might be useful to kind of understanding where Facebook is likely to go, or more precisely, where the board is likely to go with one of its decisions. It's also more likely that the board will start to get and drift further and further away from what the plain language of the specific rule is, because they're not going to be interpreting the rule every time. They're going to be bound to the prior precedent that informs their decision making today. When you have a body of 20 people that are then reliant on precedent from panels of three or whatever number that they wind up setting, which is how they are administering this process, that becomes an even bigger problem. Because while they've got a kind of concept here where the panel will submit it to the full board and the board will approve it, it's not the kind of thing that is likely to be really thought of at a high level at the instant case. Unless it's crazy at the moment in time, you're not necessarily going to be thinking as the 17 members that didn't decide this case about all the possible ways this could screw something up nine years down the road or worse. 15 years down the road where you aren't going to be responsible for any of this at all because you're term limited to nine years. So precedential value is a really interesting concept. As a lawyer, I'm fascinated by what will kind of spring out of all this. But on the other hand, I'm also mildly terrified that Facebook is just going to say, oh, to hell with this and change their rules and then just say, Yes, uh, we're going to explain to the board how it needs to decide on these various things because every time precedent comes out, we need to correct it on our level. Finally, the big item that I wanted to highlight, when reviewing decisions, the board will pay particular attention to the impact of removing content in light of human rights norms protecting free expression. Now, interestingly, that's best read to mean international human rights norms. In fact, the New York Times opinion piece, I skipped over it earlier in the video, talks about international norms. And we see here in the report that Facebook put out that was actually them discussing how this whole thing should look, that they talk about those human rights norms. It says, basis for decision-making, the board will need to have a foundation for its decision-making. Good point. The draft charter indicated that this would include a set of values, but did not determine what those would be. In response, some have called for a constitution or values commitment, some form of statement of higher order principles. Others urged that any list of values be clear on prioritization in cases where different values come into conflict, which is, in all honesty, the only time when this really should come up is when expression conflicts with safety, conflicts with hate, whatever else it is that you want to interpret. Meanwhile, a strong contingent of human rights organizations urged that the board simply adopt international human rights law as its basis for decision making. Others felt this would not provide the necessary clarity and pointed to different interpretations of human rights norms across different regions and countries. And that's exactly right. Some accused it of being just a bunch of buzzwords and stated that the very nature of hard freedom of speech cases is that they must involve trade-offs 
between these values. To address the concern about the underlying bedrock for its decisions, many propose that the board incorporate international human rights norms into its core decision-making functions, as we saw reflected in the charter. This suggestion recurred at the vast majority of workshops and roundtables, often with an admonishment to Facebook not to reinvent the wheel. These advocacy groups have also noted that Facebook is a member of the Global Network Initiative, and while Facebook is not legally bound by international human rights laws, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights set out responsibilities that companies like Facebook have to respect human rights. And then they go on and they kind of quibble and navel gaze about what this thing should be, ultimately arriving at, we're not going to really specifically describe what these standards are going to be, but we understand that we have certain obligations with respect to the UN and things like that. So pulling up that same kind of UN commitment, it says the responsibility of business enterprises to respect human rights refers to internationally recognized human rights, understood at a minimum as those expressed in the International Bill of Human Rights, which is fantastic because I've got that right here. Article 19 of that Bill of Rights says everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. That is as broad as you can probably write that. However, it conflicts with basically every other article in this Bill of Rights. And the only reason that Facebook is having this discussion is because things like the UN also talk about limiting hate speech, even though that International Bill of Rights basically doesn't mention hate speech and says freedom of expression is, as Mr. Zuckerberg described it, paramount. So what you've created with this board, what you've created with this setup is a body that purports to take into account freedom of expression, but is also implicitly balancing competing factors and balancing them how? According to, quote unquote, a set of values that guide its content policies and decisions without definition. So you've got a board that says that Facebook is bound to it, which it may or may not be, and Facebook controls its own values and the own rules which the board has to interpret, which may or may not comport with human rights norms, but we're going to try to emphasize those. And at the end of the day, where are we? Except with Facebook having another body in between itself and the public and potentially that Senate subcommittee to tell folks that they are trying. That is the goal that Facebook has here. One other confounding characteristic here, and, and I'll say this before we get to that, is I wanted to point out that each decision will be made publicly available and archived in a database of case decisions on the board's website, subject to data and privacy restrictions. And there's also another statement here that says that the actual board members that make any given decision might need to be anonymous in order to protect their ability to make these decisions. You'll note that's not the way the court system works. You don't have a situation where judges just declare anonymity because they don't think they'll be able to be unbiased in the future. That kind of consideration puts a pall over the whole thing. And then when you say, yes, we'll make it public subject to data restrictions and privacy restrictions, what does that even mean? If you can identify the meme in question or the news item in question, that's going to be able to get back to some kind of privately identifiable information, which means... Can you even share that case? Are you saying that you can't? So there's a whole lot in here. If you take nothing else away from it, it's very complicated. I want to give Facebook the credit it deserves. They really did think through building an entire kind of private supranational government concept here. The problem is, 
at the end of the day, they didn't bind themselves to a constitution. They didn't bind themselves to a set of rules. They didn't bind themselves to any specific value. So while clearly a lot of money has been spent on all of this, it doesn't much matter because Facebook can still do what it wants. Worse, if they can't do what they want, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you want to give them the credit and say, hey, they've said this is independent. They're going to follow the instructions. They're not going to do all this funny business, Rick. Why are you so cynical? The answer to that is that it was law school. But why are you so cynical, Rick? I will say this. If they have given up all that decision-making authority, the question becomes, does our favorite CDA provision 230 actually continue to apply to Facebook? For those of you who aren't familiar with this whole set of laws, the concept here is that if you are a platform provider, the internet is so important that the government has decided that you won't be civilly liable for removing things, for doing things, for moderating your content. Protection for Good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to all this stuff, whether or not it is constitutionally protected or any action taken to enable or make it available to information content providers or others, the technical means to restrict access to material on their own. Did you catch it? There's a bit of language here that's very interesting. You won't be liable for any action voluntarily taken. One, is Facebook taking the action if they're acting on the instructions of a third independent body? I think you could argue that they are not. And certainly if they have bound themselves to the decision-making of that third party, are they taking the action voluntarily? They took it voluntarily today when they put the board in place, but are they taking the action voluntarily when the order is you have to strike down this material? You have to add different material. I don't know what the instructions are going to be. The board says that there will be different things that they can look at in the future once this whole thing is up and running. And Facebook can't afford to lose this liability protection. So if a lawyer winds up coming out and they're very clever and they put together a case on this, the board will disappear overnight. You will never have heard from it. This video might be struck because it never, ever existed. This is that important for Facebook and its business model. But it's an important question to ask. This doesn't concept out the notion that a corporation running an interactive computer service will just outsource its decision-making ability to someone else. And it's important that it doesn't, right? We can do the kind of reductio ad absurdum, take this entire hypothetical to the limit. Let's say it's not an independent board that they've given their authority to. Let's say it's the Chinese government or the Russian government or heck, the American government, if you're so inclined. Whoever you think would do a bad job of enforcing the rules. Can Facebook just go and give one of these governments the authority to decide what appears on their system? And if they do, should they be shielded from liability associated with their decision-making? I would argue that probably not, right? Once you offsource that, you don't need this liability shield. You've asked someone else to take these actions. And so hopefully you've got a good contract. You have faith in the body that you've developed or whoever you've licensed out the right to do this to, but you don't need this extra protection because you're not making the decisions yourself, right? You wanted that protection, you got that protection, and now you've said, oh, it's a little bit too much of a political hot potato, so we're going to do something else. And the law really doesn't contemplate what you intend to do. So I do think Facebook is walking a line here. 
They've basically said that this board doesn't actually control them. They can change the rules whenever they want. But if we assume that that's not the case, they've also said that they are bound to the decisions of this completely independent body. Not only does that present fiduciary duty concerns on a corporate governance level, it also presents issues with liability exposure here because they're not taking a voluntary action to do whatever moderation they might otherwise be asked to do. And so I find all of this fascinating. I hope you did too. Presumably, if you last to do the half hour mark in this video, you found it fascinating as well. This has been Virtual Legality for today. We talk about these kinds of things all the time. I love talking about the tech giants right now, especially in the age of the virus, because they are doing such interesting things to try to deal with it. A lot of things I don't like, as you know, if you follow the channel, but interesting things nonetheless. So expect us to continue to cover those kinds of topics in this space, as well as business and law of pop culture, video games, movies, and the rest. We've been doing Last of Us leak legalities now for uh, almost a week. So if you are interested in any of that, please watch all four videos. We've got a lot of interesting aspects of that to talk about. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.